guest, Pastor Jeff Jenkins from Lima, Ohio. Jeff, I'm really happy to have you as our guest on Off the Shelf. Hey, it's certainly mutual, Rod. This is something that I feel would be a blessing to all of our friends. Well, that's wonderful, Jeff. I was talking with Cindy, my wife, last night, and we're trying to remember when we first met. And I know this is delving into ancient ancient history, but I think it would help our listeners <laughs> to understand a little bit more about your background. I think you were around 17. We met at Cloverdale Bible Way. You played the guitar and sang. Not sure the exact song, but I know one of your favorites was Psalm 19, The Law of the Lord is Perfect. Do you remember coming to Cloverdale <laughs> way back then? Yeah, I, I vaguely remember having hair. I think I was I was <laughs> 17, and all of us were, you know, young and, uh, well, young and impressionable and, and absolutely in love with Jesus Christ, and the fervor and the genuineness was, you know, it was palpable. It was wonderful. And that that was uh, honestly a, I think it was, uh, we all sort of fed on that, that love for back then what we called the message, this, this unfolding of all this information. Yeah, exactly. And now you were already in the message then, as was your dad. How did you come into the message? Well, in reality, just a bit of a background, I was, uh, my mom and my dad divorced when I was five. So mom had custody and, uh, then I would go to visit my dad during the summer months. And then in 66, dad came in contact with a message. And in doing so, a guy gave him about 300 message tapes. With that, then dad started a church there in California and it, it grew to around 50, 60 people. And then he just felt led to move to Tucson. And he thought at that time that Brother Branham was still alive and that it would be William Branham that would have baptized him. So when he got there, it was Wilbur Collins then that baptized him there in Tucson, Arizona. And then he ended up residing there in Tucson. So I would go to visit him during the summer months. And then at the age of 14, Rod, I decided I wanted to live with him. And of course, California laws would prohibit that. So my mom actually ended up uh, filing kidnapping charges and police knocked on our door and I had to go back home. So then I revisited the idea when I was 16. But I went to church uh, there when I was 14 for those three months. And I'll tell you, having come out of a very dysfunctional home, the the apparent functionality of the lives of the people, it's like they all knew they were going somewhere. I mean, all the men had short hair. I actually thought they were all from the, the David Monthus Air Force Base there in Tucson, Arizona. They all had like a, a, a uniform cut and the girls had beautiful long hair. And so my impression was is this uniformity, there must be something right about this. And uh, I felt uh, safe. You thought everybody was in the military. I did. Um, I really did. And and then later on, Brother Perry would say if uh, his quote was, is if the pillar of fire was uh, proud to take a picture 
uh, with William Branham with short hair, then all you men with long hair need to get a haircut. And of course, you got to remember, this is just coming out of the hippie movement. So I had hair down the middle of my back. And uh, so consequently, you know, it took about three haircuts, but I, I started to look like the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, I went through exactly the same stage. I, I got my hair partially cut and I came to church thinking everybody would would be proud of me. And, and, and all I got was, so you got your hair half cut. <laughs> I, that, that's a very safe thing that happened to me. <laughs> so, now, were you guys in the trailer park at all? Yeah, actually, the very interesting thing about that was, and I'll, you know, this is a, a bit of a uh, question that perhaps will come up later, but it sure came up uh, in my mind and resurfaced when I left the message. And that was, is the trailer park group, that we were in was uh, the same group that was in California. They all decided after dad moved from San Jose to move also. So then dad sort of oversaw the group to a bit for a little while, but there was a woman, which I won't mention her name out of the courtesy for the dead, but she ran basics. She ran it with, uh, with false prophecies and just a lot of overbearing, domineering, um, over hyper pseudo spiritual ways. And I was very young and I remembered saying to myself, this is wrong. Why are all these grown people, these men and women, uh, kowtowing to this woman. And it just really bothered me. And I would even talk with the other teenagers at the pool and say, why are they, um, why are they listening to her? And all of them were upset at their parents. So that was my first indication of maybe some vulnerability towards accepting something that was, although sensational, wrong. So you ended up pastoring the church in Lima, Ohio for how many years? I mean, you were in Cloverdale, you and your dad, and you moved back east. So when, when did you start pastoring the church in Lima? Well, I was in uh, Cloverdale for two years and then was traveling as an evangelist. And so it's kind of ironic because Brother Ed being the pastor there, I might have heard him in those two years preach eight, maybe 10 times because when I was there, he wasn't. When he was there, I wasn't. So um, uh, I ended up coming to Lima several times to preach. And then they finally asked me to be pastor. And my first answer to them was, is, my response was, is, no, I'm single. But then I just prayed about it. And that was in 1984. So uh, I was 24 years old. And then I pastored for 33 years and seven months. You married Debbie in Salem, Oregon in what year? Uh, I'm sorry. I actually started the church in October of 81 in Lima. And I married. 81. Yeah, 81. And then I married Debbie in 84. Right. And I remember yeah. coming to the opening of the church in Lima. I was in Ontario yeah. and flew down. And uh, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, we had a great time down there. And so that, <laughs> yeah, for our listeners to know, we go way back. I was at your wedding in 1984. We won't go into the details, but some really good memories. Yes. Back there. And you ended up pastoring, did you say for 34 years at the church in Lima? Yeah, 33 years and seven months to be exact. So I came to visit you and your dad when I had basically done most of my research on William Branham. And the folks here have already heard my story, but I had done a ton of research on William Branham and the message as a result of the events that had transpired in my life and at the church in Cloverdale. I think I came to 
to Lima to your church to visit you and your dad because I had a ton of questions. Mm-hmm. I was going through a lot of struggles. What did you think of the struggles that I was going through with the message at the time? Well, I remember our phone call initially when, and I asked you, you know, is there any way in your schedule that you could come visit us? We would, I'd love to sit down. At that point, honestly, thought I was going to get you back on the straight and narrow, and uh, then you uh, ended up posing more questions that than I could answer. And and I remember several of them, even to this day, because they, they, those questions that you asked, as I began to try to study them out, I realized I had no answer. And in reality, when I began to study them, and this was, when I say study, I mean, taking Brother Branham's words against Brother Branham's words, and then finding out he frankly did not tell the truth. I used to say exaggerate. I just say he exaggerated, but I finally had to be honest with myself and say he was not telling the truth. And then that's when I, I mean, I had other issues beforehand, namely the cloud, which took me back many years before then, but I kind of put that one on the shelf. And so, yeah, when you came to visit us, I honestly thought I, I, my dad and Steven Strew, we were going to help you begin to come back to square one and re-embrace. Cause I knew you was going, you were going through a lot of trauma and, and having a lot of issues with the leadership there in Cloverdale. So I thought, you know, maybe there was some bleed over from that and it was blurring your, your doctrinal, um, understanding, but in reality it was quite the opposite. And in fact, that's what started. It was the problems with leadership mm-hmm. and being being from a perspective of, well, we have all the truth and seeing how far from what I really understood biblically was the truth, just in normal Christian moral conduct. Right. That I had to say, okay, there's something seriously wrong with this. And that started me examining, as I've told the, the listeners here, I had kind of two potential issues. Maybe people had taken the message and had run it off to a place that William Brennan never intended it to, or the other possibility was that the message in itself was wrong. So I was trying to prove the message to be true and ran into some big problems. Uh, Now I have to add, I have nothing but good memories of of your dad and yourself. Yeah, Uh, and your dad, your dad to me, I don't know of somebody who was a more perfect example of a Christian. Well, thank you. And the thing that the thing that stood out f- most for my visit with you and your dad was that you were a perfect example of First Peter three fifteen, mm. and Peter tells us that we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Yeah. But do this with gentleness and respect. And that's my memory of your dad. Mm -hmm. I asked him about all the questions I had. And honestly, you were the only people that were honest with me. Mm -hmm. Your dad told me that my questions were good questions, but that he had no answers for me. Mm -hmm. But unlike a lot of people, he didn't get upset. He didn't get mad or angry at me. Right. He just he just was a friend. Yeah. As were you. And so, you know, I left there saying, okay, I. Yeah. My conclusions are correct because there are no answers. Mm -hmm. So I guess the next one is what started your journey out of the message? You had questions about the cloud, which you said you put on the shelf. And ironically, this is the name of our podcast off the shelf because we are trying to help people 
take things off the shelf and really examine them closely. So what, what started your journey out of the message? Well, off the shelf's a perfect name because I was getting so many things on the shelf, you know, because Brother Bram's statement is if you don't understand something, put it on the shelf. So after a while, I had so many things on the shelf. And I remember I was so and just absorbed with the fact that I had been misled by Brother Branham that I was sitting in the barber's chair in uh, which is a, a brother and he was also a deacon. And I said, you know what? Brother Branham lied. And I mean, I remember I thought he was going to kind of halfway shave upside my set, my head. <laughs> and he was he was a brother. And that that um, that shocked him. He was just a young, devoted young man with uh, four beautiful children, beautiful wife. And I just I was I, I didn't even think it out. I just said, you know, Brother Branham lied. And so uh, he, he kind of caught himself. He says, what about? I said, OK, Brother Branham said the mist concerning the cloud at Sunset, Arizona, of which, by the way, Rod, I took people on tours to Sunset. I, I, I wanted them to see and stand where Brother Branham stood, where the cloud on Rattlesnake Ridge could have possibly uh, come down and where Brother Branham would have seen it and how the mist would have formed, all of which is untrue, not a thing. The cloud was never there, and the mist never formed at his feet, and Fred Sothman and, and uh, the other brother – never saw Gene Norman, Fred Southland, Gene Norman, never saw a cloud. And so none of that, it's not a matter of exaggeration. None of that even happened. This, uh, this cloud, which was no doubt from, um, a man-made what came and went a week before. So consequently, brother Branham fabricated the entire story. Uh, interestingly enough, Rod right now is, is in the message circles, they're saying, well, brother Branham could not have seen a cloud, it had to have been a vision, but Brother Bram never calls it a vision of a cloud. So anyway, I know they have to come up with ways uh, to continue to carry on. But the cloud rod is what started with me. And then it's well, interesting because I, I actually, with my boys, did the same thing. We went to we went down to Arizona and drove out to Sunset Mountain. Yeah, we actually climbed it. We were ill prepared and didn't have enough water and it was smoking hot. Yeah. And so we ended up having a couple of the folks climbed right to the top of the mountain yeah. and took pictures and then, then came back down. We spent a weekend there and came to the same conclusion that William Branham didn't go up Sunset Mountain. He was on right. Rattlesnake Ridge. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So was that is that really your trigger point? Something you just couldn't deal with the cloud? For me, it was the municipal bridge vision. And then once I realized, I mean, I and I went and talked to a number of people, including George Smith and Perry Green, and came to the conclusion that the municipal bridge vision was never fulfilled. And then I just couldn't get past Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. Right. The word of God prevented me from holding on to William Branham as a, as a prophet. Exactly. Exactly. And that was one of them also. And I'll tell you what the clincher was. After I had had my doubts and I was now convinced that I was correct, I went to all the brothers in my church and I said, we have to reposition William Branham. And they looked at me like I had three heads. I said, no, I'm serious. We have to reposition William Branham. I got my pastors, the associate ministry, the deacons, the trustees. I said, we must reposition William Branham. And they said, where are we going to reposition him? I said, well, he's not Malachi 4.5 and he's not Revelations 10.7. It may be the initial uh, uh, commission is the 
only commission, but he he cannot be these other uh, word descriptions of himself and be such a liar. So then a mutual friend of ours, Rod, uh, said, have you ever gone into the Voice of Healing magazine and looked at the boy from Finland? The Inclobial. I said, no. And so he gave me all the magazine information, page after page. And I was shocked, Rod, at how Brother Branham said things over the pulpit across the American uh, landscape while he initially reported the truth in the Voice of Healing magazine. It was two completely different stories. That's something we'll go into in a later broadcast is the story of Kerry Holma, but also things like Congressman Upshaw. And there's a story that Congressman Upshaw told. You can read his story in his testimony. And William Branham initially came out with the same story, mm-hmm. but going through two, three years later, it's completely changed to be something that honestly never happened. Right. And if your kids told you that story, you would say, don't lie. Exactly. But we were always making excuses for William Branham. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were. And that's sobering. Um, but, you know, we our favorite word. In fact, my dad, when I go to my dad with these inconsistency, he would say, son, He's vindicated. We're not. And that's when I began to struggle with the word vindication. I thought, well, since when is it the man we're trying to vindicate? What about the scripture? What about Jesus? Why does this man take such a prominent role in our lives to where that we can't receive the Holy Ghost without William Branham? We can't be sanctified without his message. We wouldn't know how to dress or act. Uh, and, 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 and then you can't even go in the rapture without his message. Well, you know, it's just going to be a small group. Well, what shocked me was, is when I began to visit other churches and these people are genuine. I was told all my life they were hybrid. They were, you know, they were, they could work her harder than a, than a purebred horse. Uh, but, you know, they obviously, they're the Pharisees. They've got, they could even have a perfect life and look so good. But when it really comes down to it, you know, because they rejected William Brown's message, you know, they're either cannon fodder or or they're uh, not rapturable material. And I am been humbled to find the level of, uh, how can I say, I'll say function, uh, spiritual functionality. I find the message to be, uh, this is sad to say, but the people are not necessarily dysfunctional, but the gospel they've received creates dysfunctionality. And when I hear the simple gospel of Jesus Christ in all these churches, I'm uh, just just both blessed and humbled to find men that sincere, are much more spiritual and, and understanding of scripture and humble. You know, there's a lot of pastor worship in the message. Uh, you know, they exalt the pastor and, and these people don't. They place the pastor in the right position and the pastor has the right attitude about himself too. It has just been so both refreshing and humbling. And I've had the opportunity through the position that I hold with Power to Change to meet a number of people that honestly, I feel uh, completely humbled in their presence. Yeah. Not because they're, they come across as great men, but I've been in the UK and met a man several times who has presented the gospel to, I think it's over 20, million people now. And he's just such a humble man. I met and had dinner with Luis Palau, Mm -hmm. who was the uh, called the Billy Graham of South America several weeks ago. And he has been credited with winning over 
one million people to the mm. kingdom of God. And honestly, a more humble man I have never met. Just sweet. And all he all he talks about is revival coming to Canada and wanting the spirit of the Lord to work through people. Mm. But looking back now, I see how we were insular, we were self-focused, we were internally focused, Mm -hmm. Uh, we weren't outward focused. In fact, Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out workers in in the field because... It's about bringing people into the kingdom. Right. Now, I, I want to get back to something you had said about, you know, this whole word vindication. And this is something that really kind of astounded me because I continually hear, well, people, when William Branham was arrived, never challenged him. But in fact, that's not the case. And going back as far as 1948, mm-hmm. um, the research we've done, a man who was a uh, district superintendent with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, which is the Canadian equivalent of uh, the Assemblies of God, a man by the name of W.J. Taylor, mm-hmm. raised a concern. He and his the people in his church asked for a thorough investigation. They presented evidence that the claims of the number of people that were healed in William Branham's uh, meetings were vastly overestimated. Mm. And even indicated that I firmly believe that there is a possibility that this whole business is wrong. Mm. And this was back in 1948. And then there's another, actually, a man who was a translator for William Branham in one of his campaigns in Switzerland, a guy by the name of uh, Walter Hollenweger, who's also a a very noted Pentecostal historian, said of William Branham that he possessed an extraordinary diagnostic gift Mm -hmm. that could identify the illnesses, sometimes even the names of persons he had never seen. Unfortunately, his healing prognosis was accurate only in rare cases, i.e., he would tell people what was wrong with them, but they were rarely ever healed. And then he added, the excuse of healing evangelists in such cases has always been the patient did not really believe, for they were convinced that faith leads automatically to health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and Hollenweger then also went on to state, it must be admitted that his sermons were not merely simple, but often naive as well, and that by contrast to what he claimed, only a small percentage of those that sought healing were actually healed. Now we're gonna we're gonna talk about the whole diagnostic, the the word of knowledge, the discernment mm-hmm. at a later time, because there are also some some issues with respect to that. But certainly the vindication is not what we have been told or led to believe by people, by ministers in the message. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. And the other thing is, is that Brother Branham utilized scriptures, uh, I think, not think, I'm, I'm confident, to um, to sort of build himself up to, uh, for whatever reason, I could say maybe it was because he had complexes from his childhood. I mean, he's a human being, but he he used uh, the Bible, Bible terminology to, to create, and, and, and I say this with humility, but to create a personality cult. Um, uh, William Branham, um, without a doubt, 
possess those same characteristics of other men who uh, caused you to be riveted to him and Jesus Christ. And, and you would say, but it's justifiable because I'm in a sense glorifying Jesus in the ministry of William Branham. You know, they glorified Christ in me, Paul said. But they're, 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 the seeds for this sort of um, the seeds for this sort of blind loyalty were sown by William Branham. It's not the people um, that sowed those seeds or the ministry. But William Branham himself placed himself very, very close in proximity to having similar authority. If you if you mischaracterized him or if you disagreed with him, uh, to uh, to being judged and condemned. I mean, even Jesus wouldn't condemn anybody while he was in his flesh. But then Brother Branham said, "Speak against the Holy Ghost." And what he was really saying, "Speak against my ministry." And then he would talk about. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira will repeat. And it was all, uh, there was so much fear based, uh, having to believe on the basis of we can't cross God in this man. And when I look back now, that's not even the characteristics of Jesus Christ at all. No, and if you read in 1 John, John says that perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. We were afraid, and God came across as someone with a big stick that you had to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. Now, I I want to stop right here. I'd like to bring this kind of our conversation to a close, and we can continue this next week. Sure. So we're going to cut it off right here, and then we'll be back at our next podcast. And so I'm asking our listeners to stay tuned, come back to our next podcast, uh, when we will continue our interview with Pastor Jeff Jenkins. Thanks, Jeff. Looking forward to it. Agree to go where Jesus led, with no thought for what they would gain. For Jesus had called them by.